My name is Matt Davis. I'm one of the student pastors here at Bayou City Cypress Campus. Um, Johnny and his family are out of town this weekend, so I'm filling in. Um, If this is your first uh, Sunday with us, or if you have been out a couple weeks, let me just kind of uh, catch you up to where we are. This summer, we're doing a study on the kings and prophets. We're looking at... um, the Old Testament, and seeing the monarchy of Israel. And for the past couple weeks, um, Johnny was preaching on King David, and then on King Solomon, his son. And this week, we're going to move past. But before we do, if you would, please pray with me, so we can um, make a moment to just ask that we would be keenly aware of the Holy Spirit's presence here in this room with us. Father God, you are a good God. Lord, you are a God that we celebrate. We celebrate what you are doing in the life of children and in the life of uh, young adults and the life of adults and and, um, in the life of our church and throughout this world. You are active and you are loving and strong and you are redeeming um, your creation. And so God, we ask that this morning that we would turn our ears to you Lord, that we would lift up our hearts and our souls, our mind, and even our bodies to you for the next um, few minutes. That any distractions, that any turmoil we have within us, that you would just breathe peace on and that you would still so that we could hear your voice through your word. God, help us to receive the truth that you have for us this morning. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak through me as I serve um, this people as I serve my church and um, the families here whom I love so much. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your resurrection. All of this is for you, and it is through you. And in your name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so if you would, please open your Bibles to First Kings 11. We're going to read the last verse of 1 Kings 11, and then we're going to go in to 1 Kings 12 um, to kind of, yeah, to kind of go on from there. So if you would, please read along with me. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, Lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke upon us, and we will serve you. And he said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while, they were, while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. 
And when he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, you shall speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten, for, lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had said, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoke by Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have when David... We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot and flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this very day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. This is a fun passage. <laughs> this chapter is significant historically because it describes the moment that Israel was divided. So the monarchy of Israel had existed, but at this point, it splits. The 10 tribes of Israel, 10 of them split, and they form the northern kingdom, and they retain the name Israel. But the tribe of Judah and the Levites, the priest, stay together, and they form the southern kingdom, which is Judah. And so for 200 years, they coexisted, oftentimes fighting and warring, until in uh, AD, no, BC 722, um, Israel fell to the Assyrians. Then, about 100 years later, Judah fell to the Babylonians. And then even though they were allowed, the Jews were allowed to return, like we studied this last spring in the book of Nehemiah, they were allowed to return to Israel and to Jerusalem and resettle and rebuild. They remained in occupied territory for the, what the historians estimate for the next 2,800 years. Empire after empire after empire rose and occupied and oppressed them. The nation of Israel was no more until just after World War II in 1948, Israel reformed. And so if you look in your Bibles, um, the chapter heading, um, which was added by scholars after, uh, centuries after it was originally written, um, 
in most translations will say Rehoboam's folly. Folly simply means a lack of good sense or foolishness. But as far as mistakes go, Rehoboam's was a doozy. It cost the kingdom everything. And his foolishness had long-lasting effects. And so my question, though, is what does this story, what does Rehoboam have to do with us? What does his story almost 3,000 years ago have to do with us here today in Cypress, Texas in 2021? Well, if we look at it, I think what matters is that like Rehoboam, we too are heirs of a kingdom. If you would, please turn with me to Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. And I'm going to read all. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are sons of God, and if sons, then heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Similarly, Paul writes in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. As Christians, when we put our faith in Jesus and accept him as our Lord, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. We are brought into his family. We are adopted as his children. But if you notice the terminology of those two passages, we notice that Paul uses a specific word. And whereas um, oftentimes throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, within the Greek and the Hebrew, you, um, scholars will use the word uh, children or sons and daughters or sons interchangeably. But here in most translations, um, there is always translated sons. Why? Why sons? Is Paul discounting the role or presence of women in the early church or in the faith? No. Paul is doing something deliberate. He is making a specific theological point, much like he does elsewhere in a different way when he refers to the church as the bride of Christ. These gendered words mean something, and it draws out a point that he's trying to make. And the point that he's trying to make is one that stems from his culture and stems from history. Throughout history, most of the world um, existed in a culture of primogentry. Primogentry is um, the historical custom and even law that declared that the oldest male child, the eldest son, was the rightful successor to the estate of a parent or an ancestor, even to the exclusion of all other siblings, be they male or female. Paul's statement in both Galatians and Romans, when he uses the word son, is radical, 
radical, especially taken in context with the words he says just previously in Galatians 3. He says in verses 3, 26 through 28, For in Christ you were all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, male and female. You were all one in Christ. Paul is saying that regardless of ethnic, social, economic, or gender divisions, we who are in Christ are all sons of God. And even more, we are heirs to the kingdom. We are co-heirs with Christ. And that is a huge deal. That is a huge deal. Because what he is saying is what culture, what history had restricted to one person, God has now lavished through his grace upon us. Now let me be clear. Let me be clear that to Christ and to him alone belong all blessing and glory and honor and praise and majesty. He is the lamb. He is the one who will sit upon the throne and we will come before him and will bow down. And yet, in his good will, in his wisdom, and in his unfathomable grace, God has chosen through Christ to bestow on us who are his all the rights and the inheritance of the kingdom. 2 Timothy 2.12 even goes so far as to say, this saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. We will reign with him? Did you hear that? It's not just, this reign that he's talking about is not just referring to a future reality when Christ returns and puts all things to right. No, the kingdom where the reign will come, the kingdom of God is, was inaugurated by when Jesus was resurrected and he proved himself to be the son of God and rightful Lord of this world. And so the reign of God is any place where the rule and authority of God is recognized and lived into in the here and now. So think about when Christ taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the kingdom. It is where the rule and reign of God intersect with our present reality. And as heirs, we are called to be stewards and ambassadors of that kingdom. We are called to live into that kingdom in the here and now. This brings us back to Rehoboam. In him, we see a depiction of a failed heir. He blew it. He was a man who dissipated the kingdom of his fathers. And his story is not unique. History is littered with heirs, be they literal royalty or the celebutants of today who have squandered and frivoled away the inheritance of their family and brought shame to their family name. And so for those of us who have placed our faith in God, who have been adopted into our family, we are not to be ignorant we are not to be entitled and morally bankrupt, spoiled brats. We are called, rather, to be mature and thoughtful, sanctified children of God. 
But to understand this, we have to take a moment and understand what justification is and what sanctification is. Through Christ's death and resurrection on the cross, we are brought into a reconciled and redeemed relationship with him. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 speaks to this when it says, For it is by grace that you have been saved by faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. We cannot earn our salvation. We cannot put ourselves in right standing with God. But it's only through faith in Jesus, by God's grace, that we are redeemed. Sanctification, however, is something different. Sanctification is a process. Sanctification is the process but through which and by which we become more and more like Jesus in our actions, in our thoughts, in our mind, in our character. First, Second Peter 1, 5, 8, 5 through 8 speaks to it when it says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Make every effort. Did you hear that? And so the question is, are we making every effort to grow in our faith, in our knowledge, in our virtue, in our godliness, in our love of others? Are we making every effort? In the roughly 20 years that I've been working as a student pastor to teens and adolescents, one of the things I found is that for most of them, at some point or another, they genuinely want to know Jesus. And they want to follow him and be used by him. But it's the make every effort part. It's the make any effort part that typically trips them up. And the thing is, they become adults and they're us. Are we putting forth the work to become more like Christ? Are we diligently searching the scriptures? Are we learning to live more and more like him? Because to be an heir of the kingdom, to be who God created us to be in this life and in eternity, we have to learn to develop and flex and use the muscle of faith. So I grew up a distance runner, and I remember the first time I ever ran two miles. It seemed forever. And then in high school, I started running 5Ks. And then when I was 17, I remember one morning before church getting up and running my first 15-miler. And my legs and body ached. I was exhausted. And yet I continued to grow because I continued to do it. And I became a better and better runner because I put forth the effort. And though there was soreness and though there was tired and fatigue at times, that's what it took. And so for all of us, in some ways, we have put forth sacrifices for something. We have put forth effort in something, even if it was video gaming or, or like just hanging out with a friend and pursuing a relationship. We've put forth effort. And so we are called to do the same here, to be sanctified and live as an heir of the kingdom. 
We are called to grow up spiritually. 1 Corinthians 13, 11 says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. We all come to Jesus as spiritual infants. And that's right that we do. But we are not called to remain an infant. I don't know about you, but there's, there's been moments where I've been in Target or at the store and you see a toddler throwing a tantrum on the floor. Sometimes if I'm honest, I look at the kid and I'm like, oh, I wish I could do that. I'm having a bad day. But it's not appropriate. Because as a 40-year-old man, throwing myself on the ground and wailing and screaming and crying in the middle of Target because I want something doesn't quite work. As Christians, we are called to grow up and to be spiritually mature. And so one of the ways I think we can examine if we are living into the kingdom reality, if we are truly living for the kingdom and being sanctified, is if we look and examine our personal relationships to comfort and to power. What value do we place in comfort? And how do we yield the authority that God has given us in our life? In Rehoboam, we see pride. We see a demand for control, and we see cruelty. When the people of Israel came before him requesting empathy, rather than seek God through prayer or listen to the advice of those older than him, he put his confidence in those whose thoughts and experiences mirrored his own. His ultimate response, I will discipline you with scorpions, was not about them working hard. It dripped of cruelty, of severity, and spite. Instead of serving his people, Rehoboam concerned himself with the maintenance of his life of ease and privilege, the elevation of his own name, and a kingdom built in his image for his purposes. We too face those same temptations. Comfort, ease, control, privilege, the elevation of our names. What do we do? Are we going to be like Rehoboam? Every time we think of this, I hope we remember Solomon's word from Proverbs 17, 16, verse 18, where it says, pride comes before fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. Well, are we going to be prideful and arrogant before God? God has no use for our pride. None whatsoever. But in Jesus, conversely, we see the values of the kingdom. Namely, we see humility. We see obedience, sacrificial love, embodied and lived out. Philippians 2, 6-8 says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Through the very, though he was the very incarnation of God himself, Jesus was a humble servant. And while he was humble and while he served, he was also committed to truth and spoke truth boldly. He consistently, time and time again throughout the Gospels, crossed the social 
the cultural, the gender, and the economic boundaries and lines to meet and to share the gospel, the good news, to share himself with those in need, with those who are the least of these. Do we do the same? In the Gospel of Luke, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus marks his entrance into his public ministry by saying these words, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. The good news Jesus proclaimed and preached was not in word only, but it was lived in every experience he had with another, ultimately in the cross and resurrection. Over this past semester, we've been going through Galatians with the high schoolers. In Galatians 5, um, there's, a, there's a verse, 5 verse 6, that has stood out to me over and over. And to summarize it, what Paul says is, for in Jesus, the only thing that matters is faith expressed in love. And that's a metric I've started using for myself to judge my motives, to judge my actions, to judge my words. Am I living a life of faith? Are my motives faithful to God? Are they in keeping with trust in him and belief in him? And are they expressed in love? Because 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, if I am not loving, I am nothing. We live in a culture and in an age where oftentimes the sentiment is that the ends justify the means. But that's not true for the Christian. We are called to live by faith expressed in love. What do we do, though, if when we take that look in the mirror, when we hold that metric up to ourselves, we realize that we are Rehoboam, that we have not been good heirs to the kingdom, that we are, are, and our lives are marked by pride and selfishness and injustice, and we have not committed ourselves to being conformed to the image of Christ. What do we do then? Because that's often how I feel, who I am. Fortunately, as a believer, as one belonging to Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit, we are not left on our own. And so the first thing we do is we cry out to God and we confess. We, as sons and daughters of the King, can boldly approach his throne and ask for mercy. And we can confess our sin because God knows that we all have fallen short of the glory of God. 1 John 1.9 says, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There will be times when we mess up. We will never fully be free of, of the burden of sin and the power of sin in our life until Christ comes again and fully redeems. But we always have the opportunity to go before God and to repent and to confess we also have the ability to go before others, to those we've hurt, to those we've wounded, and confess and apologize. Because there is redemption. 
The second thing we do when we realize that we are failing to live as God's heirs is to commit ourselves to obedience. Yeah, at times we will have to face the Lord's discipline. And it's not fun. It's not. But God loves us too much to let us get away with wanton sin in our life. There may be consequences and they may be painful. But Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 reminds us of something important. There the author says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when we are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. The heart of the word discipline is disciple. It's disciple. We will only be disciplined by God to the extent that we learn. And so let's be quick students. Let's learn how to follow him. Let's learn how to live and leverage our lives for the kingdom with everything we have, making every effort. Again, let's not just settle back into comfort and ease, but miss the work that God is doing in this world. And part of that means resolving to obey him, whatever he asks going forward. But what do we ultimately do with this account of Rehoboam? The consequences of his folly was immense. 3,000 years, 3,000 years of loss, 3,000 years of oppression. And we have to understand that the land of Israel, the very land itself was part of the covenant promise that God had made his people. And so this decision, this bad choice, this foolishness seems to have blown it all for many, for thousands of years. So what does that mean? Does it mean that there are some decisions we make that there's just no going back from? That God's like, oh, I'm done. And he pulls out of our life. What do we do? Because if that were true, I couldn't stand here. I couldn't be in this room with you. We find the answer in 2 Kings 12, 15. There's a phrase there. It says, it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. God is still sovereign, even in the midst of our stupidity, even in the midst of our folly. God is working his plan out, his plan of redemption and salvation into all creation. And we can't stop that. We can't ruin it. And so, like, what we can do, what we can do, though, is to miss it in our lives at times because we are so concerned with building another kingdom. But any other kingdom that we build for other than the kingdom of God, be it personal be it financial, be it social, political, denominational, national, it will topple. Only the kingdom of God remains. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, therefore, since we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us worship acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. 
There are many things in our lives that can be shaken. We can be shaken, but the kingdom of God cannot and will not be shaken. So just as the parable says, we can build our life on the rock, on Christ and his kingdom and live as heirs to that kingdom. And that's what we're called to. And that means owning our mistakes and apologizing when needing and obeying when we need to. I have made mistakes. I've made mistakes as your student pastor. I have made choices either intentionally or unintentionally that at times have maybe hurt or wounded your students. And I'm sorry for that. As a church, Bayou City has made some mistakes and we are sorry. The American church has made some mistakes that don't reflect Christ. And it's sorry. What do we do with that? Does that topple the name of Christ? No, because Christ will emerge always and his church will stand victorious even through all of those things. We do not have it in us to ruin the plan of God. We do not have the power to ruin what God is doing. And so when we make mistakes, instead of hiding it, we simply acknowledge, I blew it. But that's what the the cross was for. And so we look to the cross because there we find redemption. There we find grace. And the cross isn't there in spite of our humanity. The cross exists because of it. And that is the gospel. So we will truly be the heirs that God created us to be when we live into the gospel fully. And that's the invitation that we have, to live into the gospel, to live for the kingdom as heirs, as sons of God, together, and to grow in that process of sanctification together. And so I don't know where you are this week. Maybe you have had a fantastic week and maybe you and God are good and obedience is, is coming easy to you right now. Or maybe there are some things that are weighing heavily upon you. Maybe there are some places in your life where you are just kind of avoiding God. You don't, you're not really doing well there. You've just kind of sectioned some things out. Or maybe this whole Christianity thing is completely new to you. And you're like, I don't even understand what this cross thing is. Wherever you are, God invites you to come to him. To come to him. And to be known by him. And to be redeemed by him. So this morning as we close, we're going to conclude with a time of worship, of song. But if you just need to come and to have someone pray with you, pray for you, pray with you. Don't hesitate. This is a sacred place. It's a sacred place of grace where we can encounter God together and be upheld by the faith of this community. So come. Don't back away from Christ. Don't hide Don't persist in in stubbornness and folly. It didn't go well for Rehoboam, it won't go well for us. But instead, throw yourself fully into the grace and love of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you that you are a loving God who is faithful and true to your word. And that your kingdom agenda can never be stopped. 
and that your redemption is bigger than anything we can imagine. Lord, we ask that you would, you would examine us, that you would search our hearts, oh God, and that we would come before you and that you would, um, that you would cleanse us of all sin. Lord, help us to, to know you more, to press deeper into you. It is in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.